I'm Kira Brick-Kirik. I'm Nicole Breeden. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Today, our guest is Kevin Chin. Kevin Chin's paintings assemble fragments from across continents to test how unprecedented transnational flows shape our place in the world. He intertwines landscapes and repositions cultural references to explore how place forms fluidly in the consciousness, superseding geography. He examines post-nationalism, advocating for social inclusiveness at a time of global migrant crisis and political swings to conservative nationalist ideals. In Melbourne, Kevin is represented by This Is No Fantasy and in Sydney by Martin Brown Contemporary. He has exhibited widely around Australia, as well as solo exhibitions in Japan, Singapore and the USA. He's also the winner of the Bayside Prize in Melbourne and the Albany Prize in Western Australia. Kevin has been awarded grants from the Australia Council, City of Melbourne, Ian Potter Cultural Trust and has served on the assessment panel for Creative Victoria. Kevin's next solo exhibition is titled Structural Equality and will open at Martin Brown Contemporary in Sydney on the 2nd of May. Thanks for joining us in the studio today, Kevin. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Kiara. It's really great to be here. We're so excited to have you here. Oh, we're just so excited about your enthusiasm for the podcast as well. <laughs> well, it's much needed. I think it fills a real gap. Um, and it's a lot of stuff that we wish we had when we were uh, younger artists. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to um, be able to share this resource with people. Um, so we'll start off with um, how we start off all of our um, interviews asking, how did you start off making art and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Well, um, to start off with right at the beginning, I was born in Malaysia. Um, I've, I have Chinese ancestry and my family moved to Melbourne when I was just two years old. Mm-hmm. So I grew up here, but um, my migrant experience meant that I had very, well, really no exposure to contemporary art growing up. So I had to really find that all for myself um, as a young adult. I remember um, going to the NGV, I think for the first time, um, maybe as a teenager or my early 20s and seeing a John Catapan triptych. Mm. Mm. I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, That was probably the first time that contemporary art really kind of resonated with me. And I had another um, slightly... The other thing that really um, triggered my interest in going to art school was um, at the time, actually, I was a trainee. I was going to go work in public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so issues of social justice have always been really important to me. Yeah. And it's what I'd be doing now if I wasn't an artist, I think. So um, while I was doing this traineeship, I had some time. I went to a backpacking around Vietnam mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, when, you know, you meet heaps of people and people would ask you, oh, you know, tell us a bit about yourself. What, would you do? what do you do back home? And it was weird because the first thing I would say to people was, I'm an artist, you know, because you can kind of make up whoever you are, you know, no one knows who you are. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was really surprised at myself that like, oh, I, I, had, I had no idea what this thing was, like of what was being an artist. I had, I had no idea, but somehow that's what came out of me. And I was really surprised. And when I came back, I'd finished my traineeship, but then I thought, oh, maybe there's something in that. As a kid, all I ever wanted to do was draw. But aside from that, I didn't know anything else. But I managed to um, get myself into TAFE for a year. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I managed to get into BCA, Victorian College of the Arts. Yeah. So, and it went on from there. Mm. But I remember being um, 
so far behind when I got finally got into VCA. Mm. It was kind of embarrassing because everyone else around was making these masterpieces. And here I was with just no clue at all, no experience with the arts. Um, I actually remember asking um, Jan Murray and Kim Donaldson to actually show me how to paint, like physically. Um, And at the time I owned two brushes. Um, They both cost, I think, about (laughs) $1.75. And I had four tiers of paint, two blues and two reds. I remember it really well. And Jan Murray, they were really great, actually, considering I was... They were probably wondering, like, how do we even let this guy in? But um, they were they were actually really nice. And they and Jan, I remember Jan saying to me though, like, I can't even use these brushes. So if I can't use these brushes, there's no way you're going to be able to do anything with this. You need to go, you know. So it was that kind of level, like. But having said that, getting to art school was like, it was like um, a homecoming for me. Like yeah. it was the first time in my life that I felt like. Um, in the right place. Mm. Because I think for growing up, I always felt kind of weird. Like Mm. the way that I thought Mm. was different Mm. to everyone else around me, even at the workplaces that I had before Mm. going to VCA, Mm. I was always the weirdo. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you shop at VCA and suddenly everyone's like you. (laughs) And it's like the best thing ever. Everyone's a weirdo. Yay. (laughs) It's so interesting. I think also, I think that thing of like coming into a space and feeling like you're a fraud often permeates so many artists like, full trajectory of their careers thinking yeah. that they're being a fraud. But mm-hmm. I definitely felt the same coming into VCA and mm-hmm. I was like straight from high school and I had yet yeah, a few, I had like some crappy old hand-me-down oil paints that mm-hmm. I didn't know how to mix, I didn't know how to use. I thought that I was legitimately going there to learn how to paint mm-hmm. and I was like, no, you mm-hmm. don't, that doesn't. Mm-hmm. That, we don't <laughs> do that here actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny because I think there's such a mixed bag of people and people with different backgrounds going to art school. And I remember the ones that you actually remember, well, the ones that you compare yourself to tend to be the ones who are really far ahead. Like, you know, Mm, there were other kids who were reading Batal in grade five. And while I was at home watching The Bold and the Beautiful with my (laughs) mum, like, I had no idea. I had catch up on not only the actual (laughs) skill side of things, but all the, like, the reading side of things and what Mm, does it mean mm -hmm. to actually be a contemporary artist. Like, I had to catch up. So I was there in the studios all hours. Yeah. Like, the security guards knew me by name because, you know, you remember we had to sign on (laughs) in the morning. They're still there. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. The same ones. Oh, really? Still there. Benson. Yes. Hey, Benson. shout out to Benson. Yeah. Thanks you, for Benson. not kicking me out before yeah. seven thirty yeah. every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is. It's interesting that I that self motivation to learn as well and to like really. I think um, VCA is really. It was such a wide open school where you really had to kind of enforce your own timetable and. Um, but I think people were so excited to learn and had so much drive and dedication and to stay there and, like, just keep working until you literally got mm. thrown out of the mm-hmm. door. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that was actually the best training you could have because that's what you have to do mm. as an artist. You so have to true. set completely set mm. your own parameters and you have completely are really on your own schedule. Mm. Yeah. I remember being like, am I allowed to take, I thought you had to leave your studio and take a one hour lunch break because it was written. It's written in the the thing, yeah. (laughs) And then there was one of our classmates that was like, why do you go at midday each day? I'm like, don't we have to? (laughs) (laughs) A legacy from going straight from school. (laughs) No, such a child. Is this lunch lunch break time? um, For you um, going to art school, did that... um, 
give you like a full feeling of wanting to then step into the arts or was there any time that you were kind of apprehensive about going forward as an artist or? Oh, totally apprehensive because I just thought like, how am I ever going to match up with everyone around me? Like mm. I had, I just had so much work to, to do to catch up with everyone else and definitely so much insecurity um, mm. all through art school. Um, I think also, but I think the thing that, got me through was that also that I was just so, um, it was just like so eye-opening. Mm. Like I was had my, I was sort of, you know, bright-eyed, what's that cliche? Like, mm-hmm. um, Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The whole way through mm-hmm. and I was taking it all in. I was talking to everyone. Mm-hmm. I was talking yeah. to all the teachers. People would joke um, that, you know, is there any department that you're not enrolled in? Because <laughs> I was sitting in on the sculpture tutes mm, and going so to the photo- learning how to use the photography studios. I was doing everything. So um, I guess in terms, and I, I, I guess I didn't really, because I'd never really thought, oh, what does it be an artist? I'm going to be an artist and all this kind of thing. I just was taking it for what it was and just absorbing everything mm. I possibly could. And I think I just was so obs- like preoccupied with that that I didn't really think too much about mm-hmm. like what's going to happen after this yeah 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 and what was that process after you graduated from your undergrad did you go on to study honors straight away or was you were you working in a studio or um yeah I actually did so I didn't do honors straight away um I actually went on to do a series of um solos at artist run spaces mm-hmm. in Melbourne mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was working across forms, so I was doing a lot more installation-based work and was interested in the meaning between art objects. Mm-hmm. But I'd always done painting um, as part of those installations. Yeah. Um, but actually, I actually felt like it um, slowed me down in a way because while other people kind of knew, had their thing worked out, mm-hmm. I was trying to do really probably too much. And it was so kind of slowing down my development in any one particular thing. Mm. I think also because I was working kind of a couple of different jobs at that per- in that period, um, two or three days a week at least, that I just felt a bit frustrated mm. that um, I wasn't getting, my work wasn't progressing the way that I wanted mm. it to. And actually it all came to a head. My dad, in 2011, my dad um, passed away from after a number of years uh, struggling with cancer. Mm. And in that year, um, I was really stretched too thin because I was spending a lot of time at the hospital um, as well as doing my job. And then I had these shows lined up yeah. as well. But I also just questioned for myself, like, um, you know, if I was to die next year, what's, what is the one thing I would actually want to do? And then I actually came up with the conclusion that I just want to make a really great painting. Yeah, and right. so from then I just kind of decided I'm going to recreate myself as a painter, painter. Um, and I went back to do, that's when I went, decided to go back and do my honours year and mm-hmm. I, asked for jo- I asked for John Catapan mm-hmm. as my honours supervisor to help mm. me kind of develop a more solid painting practice in particular. Mm. And that was, um, that kind of was a, a, a new shift, I guess. Mm. Um, and following, actually from my honours year, I got picked up by Diane Tanza, This is No yeah. Fantasy. And so I started showing more in commercial contexts after that mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. Mm. which was another shift again. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And, and do you feel that was like a, a good shift in terms of um, that it complemented your kind of painting practice and kind of yeah. moving more away from that sort of installation kind of practice? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, they show... Um, 
a lot of cross-form mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, the biggest thing was it just raised my profile mm-hmm. a lot more mm-hmm. than what I was able to do on my own. Yeah. I know a lot of people are perfectly happy without commercial galleries. Mm-hmm. They don't want commercial galleries. It comes with a whole lot of other, a series of a whole other different pressures mm-hmm. and um, a it's a big part of the last few years has been a learning curve for me of how to kind of navigate the commercial context. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said all that, for me, um, the benefit has been really huge. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's been one of the biggest resources that I've been able to mm-hmm. tap into is having um, a gallery to work with. And mm-hmm. actually more recently I've just signed on now in Sydney with Martin Brown Contemporary, mm-hmm. so just in the last year. So mm-hmm. um, that's a new thing that mm-hmm. I'm starting to work out, navigate as well, showing mm-hmm. I haven't shown interstate a whole lot before. Um, but just having someone else there who's got a vested interest in your practice is just the best. Like, cause yeah. you know how as an artist, often you just feel like you're kind of on your own. Who cares? Who cares mm-hmm. if this, mm-hmm. what do I do here? But just having someone else to kind of check in with, this is what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. and asking for advice for things, having a gallery to work with to do yeah. that has been really helpful for me. That's yeah. great. Yeah. What have you found to be some of the biggest challenges or things that you've needed to overcome to continue your practice over these years? I think um, probably the biggest challenge, actually I'd have to say would be coming from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is that, um, like I was talking about, I had no I had no frame of reference as to what an art, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as being an artist. But more than that, um, my family really had no idea. And you got to understand that they kind of sacrifice a lot um, mm. and to get our family into this country. Mm-hmm with the only reason being to kind of um, give us a chance to go to uh, university. In Malaysia, they, I don't, well, at that time anyway, the um, entry to universities is actually has a racial quota. Mm. So because my family is Chinese, the places for university, places for Chinese students um, is actually really low proportionate to the population. So basically, anyway, the point mm. is that they never probably very unlikely for any of us to be able to get to, to go have a yeah. tertiary education in Malaysia. So anyway, point is my f- family moved um, here um, really just to give us kids a chance for a better life. Mm-hmm. And so it's been very hard for them to see me struggle financially when yeah. they know that I could have gone, I could have done dentistry or something, yeah. like, you know. Um, it's not in line with what their dreams for me were. I mean, my sister's yeah. a business analyst and my brother's a, works in the banking sector. So mm. they're really, you know, kind of what, th- that was more in line with what they expected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and they just don't understand, like, it, it's been very hard for them the whole time to grasp, like, what is an artist? Like, even like, I just came back from residency and even still my brother asked, what do you do on residency? Like, you know, it's constantly, mm-hmm. but what does that mean? And how, how does that pay you? Or mm-hmm. how are you? Mm-hmm. So I guess as artists, you know, we always have these insecurities already. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what am I doing this for? Like, what is the point of this? So then to be constantly <laughs> questioned by your family does not really help yeah. that so mindset. Your yeah. well-intentioned brother comes in and, and asks you, like, what, what, what is the value of that? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Don't know. Exactly. Like, do I know? And it's hard. Because, and it's, there's a whole lot of guilt that comes with that mm. as well. Because, you know, my family, my parents did all this stuff to kind of raise the, you know, social yeah, economic level. Yeah, and set level. you up in a, yeah, give you all these opportunities. And it's 
it's obvious that you actually have benefited from that and were able to take those opportunities, but often it doesn't look like a package that, you know, um, yeah, that different generations might have seen as opportunities as well. Like yeah. things have changed and there's generational shifts as well as cultural shifts about what um, what is a potential like way to make a livelihood um, yeah. and exist within the world. And, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's hard enough to say that to someone across a room at a bar, let alone saying that to mm. your parents mm-hmm. that this is what you do. And Well, I think we all have to kind of work it out for ourselves mm. to start off with. Mm-hmm. And then... It's already hard because, you know, we, we all have workmates that aren't in the arts and stuff and you have to kind of justify what you're doing to basically everyone in the world. So it's very hard to then justify it to people at home as well. Yeah, yeah. But actually the second reason I think that being from a culturally and linguistically diverse background has been challenging is because I think um, most of the curators, most of the gallerists in Australia are white. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, um, you know, so if the themes in my work about transnationalism um, and issues of globalisation, because, you know, that may have been big in the 80s and 90s, so, you know, curators are always after the newest thing. And so sometimes I think these themes that are interested, of interest to people of colour Maybe they're kind of like, oh, well, I've heard all this before, but Mm. the issues of structural inequality, they're still there because they haven't been resolved. Totally, Mm -hmm. and it's happening, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, migration continues to happen and refugees continue to happen and we haven't resolved this situation and there's people that need homes and, you know, it's a current issue. How could it Mm. not be relevant Mm. and... um, Oh, and still very much finding ways of talking about that too. Mm. Like it's still... Well, issues to do with racial relations in Australia, we just don't talk about it yeah. here. Like mm. I, a lot of the material I get is comes from America mm. because there's very little content mm. access mm. in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and stuff like, I mean, I, I, um, I'm kind of amazed by, I think in America they do a lot more with white privilege training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking across workplaces generally. Yeah. I think in Australia... We definitely need more of that. Mm-hmm. Totally. And particularly in the arts, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been more of a groundswell with actually a younger generation of artists um, who I'm thinking of um, Andy Butler and Sophia Sai, who mm-hmm. wrote articles last year critiquing the whiteness of the Australian art scene. Yeah. Um, so I think there's more of a groundswell and a bit more consciousness mm. raising. Mm. I think also Melbourne is particularly guilty for that, um, even hearing from situations from people living in Sydney and Brisbane and um, other states that, um, yeah, from an, from their perspective, looking at Melbourne and who is showing in artist-run spaces, mm-hmm. it's crazy that in the artist-run spaces that it's predominantly white or reflecting mm-hmm. only one part of the community um, mm-hmm. because they're meant to be artist-run and they're meant yeah. to show... Yeah, and it's um, and also I think also reflected in the universities who's teaching them, mm-hmm. um, who what who are they staffed by? Yeah, uh, I actually um, when I finished honors, I did write a master's proposal. I was thinking about doing masters at that point, and I was going to write to my topic was about race relations in Australia. But at the time, I just didn't feel comfortable with mm. anyone who would be my supervisor that I would mm. kind of get what I was going on about. Yeah, so I didn't end up doing it actually. But I mean, I love VCA. I think it's. The thing is, I think it's not about blaming particular institutions. Mm. I read a book, a really great book recently called um, 
How to Be Less Stupid About Race by Crystal Fleming, an African-American uh, writer. Um, who, who, and the takeaway from that book is that these issues are structural. Yeah. You know, we tend to think about race-related issues as being on an individual level, like, oh, you know, it's the worst thing you could call someone is, you know, to say that they're a racist. Yeah. And I think um, we need to really refocus that attention on it being a structural issue. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. if the people who have the power to curate artists into shows, give people opportunities, if they're mostly white, I mean, they're not trying to... Um, disadvantage people of colour, but mm. you're just naturally going to be drawn to art that is in line with your own personal experience. And mm. so we we desperately need more people of colour in positions with, mm-hmm. of agency yeah. where they can um, have more of an influence in what happens in our sector. Yeah. Understanding those challenges um, and maybe other um, parts of your practice that you've had to kind of overcome to continue what has been one of the biggest resources that have assisted your arts practice and has, you know? Sure, yeah. There's actually, I mean, um, there's been a lot really. Um, I think, I have to say VCA has, was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I was saying, it was, it, it still feels like home. The teachers are still amazing. Like mm. I see them around and they're always really happy to, you know, give advice still and, stuff yeah. and I still need all of that. <laughs> so that's that's been really great. Um, I mentioned the galleries, so This Is No Fantasy and Martin Brown Contemporary mm. um, and the importance of um, having that kind of support. I mean, even just having a space that you know, that you know you're welcome to show at so you don't have to apply for a show every single time, mm. um, things as basic as that, but just also the like I was saying, the support that they give you, like just feel, making you feel a bit less alone in mm. the arts. Um, it's been great. Um, I have to say, I think Melbourne, doesn't Melbourne have the m- biggest number of artist-run spaces of any city in the world? Have you heard that Ooh, before? I don't know about the world, but yeah. yeah. I haven't Probably. heard that one before, but yeah. I, something to be proud of. I, I, yeah, I can't vouch for that. Sounds impressive. That's quite a lot. <laughs> I think we do really well here with um, art artist-run initiatives, like, um, and I've really benefited mm-hmm. from being having the opportunity to show at those and show works that, you know, you're not mm-hmm. quite sure about mm-hmm. or, um, and the fact that they're all peer assessed, I think mm. it kind of really gives you a lot of validation um, showing in those spaces. So I think um, having having the, had the opportunity to show in a lot of artist-run spaces has been mm. really terrific. Mm. Yeah. And um, I'd say... I've been fortunate to be, have some a lot of support actually with grants, and I'd that's say great. that's also been the, another resource that I've really needed. Like mm. even um, so, for example, the Australia Council um, their Art Start grant I got that a few years ago, and that fun, allowed me to buy stuff like a digital SLR camera, mm-hmm. which for every artist you'd think is kind of mm. you, you, that you need. So but, um, but who can afford one? I, know, I mean, they're thousands of dollars. I so, so, like, upset, you know, walking around the city and there's all these people with their, like, fancy, crazy Oh, my gosh. Like and they don't even extend- know how to use yeah, it. Yeah, or my extended family. And I'm like, do you know how so much we automated. would just, like, <laughs> <laughs> we just really need a camera? Like, right. you don't need that to right. shoot your family photo. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's totally overkill. And here we are in our crappy little, like, eh. I'm trying to document work and stuff. But, um, yeah, so I think um, funding bodies, when they do programs like that, I think are a huge asset. Mm. And it's a shame. Outside I don't think exists anymore. I don't think it does. So it's mm. kind of like, oh, but because um, I need, I really mm. needed that mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of the grants I've had, like even just to pay for like the gallery rent and artist-run mm-hmm. spaces, like 
I've absolutely needed those grants at the, at the times that I've had them. Mm. So um, I'd say that would be another really big resource mm, that yeah. has really mm. helped me out. And we, like, yeah, that we're so lucky in Australia as well for what is available compared to, I know, in the US, that that funding is not mm. available for people at oh. a kind of emerging or mid-career to have access to funds to create oh, new work. I think we've, we've got it so good over here. I was shocked because yeah. I, I did a residency at Ted and Art Lab last year mm-hmm. at the base of Yellowstone National Park. Mm-hmm. And their whole program, they don't get any government mm-hmm. support. And it was amazing. I mean, they have they run an amazing um, residency program. Mm-hmm. And I was amazed how people get by in America yeah. without yeah. any government support at all. Mm-hmm. It's true. We mm-hmm. have got, mm-hmm. and it's not just uh, here in Australia, we've got government, but we've also got philanthropic organisations mm-hmm. like the Ian Potter Cultural mm-hmm. Trust, mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, there's, there's different levels. And we've got local government grants as well, even yeah. smaller grants. And we've got a few things that we can access here, mm. which um, is kind of a rare thing worldwide and we're kind of mm. lucky to mm. have those in Australia. Mm. How did you go about with grant writing? Was that an easy thing for you to kind of pick up or did you, like, have you struggled with grant writing or is it a love-hate relationship or what's your relationship? That's a great with? question because yeah. I, um, I was very, I actually... I remember doing the grant writing thing in C, uh, CFR in, in third year at VCA oh. and getting a really low mark <laughs> for it. <laughs> going like, oh, gosh, how's this going to work? Um, but I actually was very lucky and got the, f- yeah, people are going to hate me for saying this, but I did get the first grant that I applied for with City mm. of Melbourne. Mm. But I think um, grant uh, funding bodies often will support really early emerging artists mm-hmm. because it's really exciting. They're doing something really fresh. And then the further you get along, it's like, oh, no, we, the, you know, it's harder to get funding. So yeah. mm-hmm. I applied for the Australia Council for like, I don't know how many times, uh, for at least four or five times, I think, before I could get anything from the Australia mm-hmm. Council. So um, what I would say to that is, for, as a bit of advice for anyone, mm. is that and now that I've been on the assessment panel mm. a couple of times for Creative Victoria... I kind of realised that it's not always about you as an applicant. Mm, Um, They have their whole, there's a whole other range of decision-making processes. People on the panel bring their own personal biases into um, it, whether it's personal, whether it's that they, you know, whether it's a curator who's worked with these artists before or whether Mm -hmm. it's um, people who have, um, you know, take painting and they just want to see, you know, a particular art form pushed Mm -hmm. or something. You know, everyone's got these things. So... Just because you don't get grants over and over again doesn't necessarily mean it's about you. Having mm-hmm. said that, though, of course, you have to mm-hmm. constantly work on your grant mm-hmm. writing. Yeah. So I actually not getting grants for four or five times with the Australia Council, that's what really helped my grant mm. writing improve. Because yeah. every single time I call the Australia Council and say and ask for feedback, yes. and that's yeah. advice I give to every people, time, is yeah. that you yeah. really need feedback. to do that. It's really mm-hmm. hard to do mm-hmm. because you don't want to confront Yeah. Uh, and well, it's scary to call a funding body for a start because you're kind of like, um, oh, what if I think I'm an idiot? Like, yeah, what if they yeah. have no idea who I am because they yeah. didn't even read my application because it's so bad? And what if they say what? something wrong and they've got to put a black mark exactly. against my name? Exactly. Totally. <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to do. Um, but I have to say, some of the best advice I got with helping me improve my grant writing was from calling mm. um, up afterwards. Yeah, so actually, yeah. one of the best pieces of advice I got from the Australia Council that I'd never thought of before was um, 
think of it as a competitive process. Because I don't think as artists we, ne- we naturally think of ourselves as competing. Yeah. Like we're all quite collaborative. We're all always trying to help each other. But I had never thought of it in that way before with um, that the grant application. Because I always thought, okay, I'd write my grant. And thought, oh, this is okay. I'll submit it. But actually what you're going to keep in mind is that everyone's applications are fantastic. Like I always mm. thought, oh, because you hear the statistics, like, you know, uh, over 100 people applied for and 10 things got funded. Mm. And you think, oh, a lot of them must be duds, surely. Like I could, you know, mm. I'm, I'm sure I could be okay. But actually, now that I've been on the panel, mm. I see that bloody hell, everyone's application is fantastic. Like, you, great. Well, that's yeah. the thing. It's not enough to just be like, oh, I think this will do. Mm. But you've got to really work on those, mm. on those grant applications. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to scare people off from applying, yeah. but it is something that you have to keep yeah. working on mm. and working it's towards. It's a skill. Totally. A skill that and you I learn. think also like um, maybe not so much for Australia Council as well, but for other funding bodies, building relationships, going in and speaking to someone, having a meeting, mm. seeing what they're interested in, what are they kind of, what do they have money for that year? Like this is maybe more for local council, but like what are they kind of interested in funding at that time? Um, kind of really being able to craft your application to a really specific area of what they are interested in at that time. Um, yeah, totally. And it takes a lot of work and, um, you know. Well, actually speaking, definitely, I, I totally agree that speaking to someone um, before you um, get too far along in the process of writing mm. your application is a great idea. I think also... Some because because the, the different funding um, arrangements are, can be quite different as well. Like mm. for example, Creative Victoria. I didn't even realize this, but Creative Victoria has a um, requirement that artists get paid. So you need to actually put, to put in, in an yeah. artist fee in your as part of your budget in your application. Whereas mm. other grant applications are specific that they you you can't apply for an artist yeah. fee, and if you mm-hmm. apply for an artist fee, that it immediately discredits you. Mm-hmm. So getting just getting that kind of information beforehand helps you also mm-hmm. um, make the grant application more specific to their particular yeah. um, funding purposes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think also um, I think when I graduated, I just was like, I'll apply for everywhere, or even still, sometimes I just get a bit like, you know crazy eyed and like I'm just, just gonna like spray it yeah just gonna yeah. apply to everything but then being like actually know who is going to be the most like beneficial person for me to work with in that um scenario for that work is it going to be a traveling like a, a body that um funds traveling or is it going to be somewhere that funds professional development or is it local council because I'm actually working within a community rather than just kind of thinking that like seeing the money signs and going to just apply for all of it being really specific and seeing how your application can really um, be of, yeah, really hit their key selection criteria. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And actually when you mentioned key selection criteria, I think that's really important to address because that's how they assess the applications. Because I think as artists sometimes we're just like, is the work good? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's often not what Mm -hmm. they're looking at Mm -hmm. because there's usually um, something like three very specific things that they mm. are and the way that it works is that they are scoring you on those three mm-hmm. particular criteria mm-hmm. so that's you mm-hmm. know when you're writing application like that for example i'm t- talking about stuff like the viability of the project mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. of the criteria mm-hmm. um so if you haven't got sort of um a really detailed budget 
I've been in panels where people do pick people up on that. Yeah. So you do need to keep the, whatever the criteria they have in that funding round. Mm-hmm. You need, do need to mm-hmm. really keep those mm. those in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like um, uh, it would be such a valuable experience for most artists to be on one of those um, oh, selection panels. A hundred percent. In fact, I think Kate just gave um, our professional practice class that advice in VCO mm-hmm. that if you can mm-hmm. ever get on a panel for anything, mm-hmm. so um, selections for exhibitions in an artist-run space, if you can be on the committee for that, any mm-hmm. any kind of panel you can be on, it's hugely mm-hmm. valuable for mm-hmm. seeing like how people actually make decisions and mm-hmm. and seeing that just if you didn't get something, it's often not because your, mm. your work wasn't good enough. It's not yeah. about that, often the case. Yeah. 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 So in a typical day or a week in the life of Kevin Chin, um, what, how does it kind of play out for you? Like what, what's kind yeah. of a typical day or a week for you look like? It's pretty boring, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess now that I'm uh, painting all the time, the paintings are really... Um, a time-consuming process. So mm-hmm. I'm basically, I'm very regimented. So um, I will be in the studio from 8.30 till 6.30 every day, mm. Monday to Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and that time is reserved purely for painting. Mm. Um, all the other stuff, and there's a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all this, like we talk about writing grant applications, applying for prizes, organising freight, sourcing mm-hmm. materials writing artist statements, everything else has to happen in the evenings and on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Wow. When do you have any time? Well, that's the whole thing. I think you don't. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's really normal for all artists. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if when you're not working at some other day job or whatever it is mm. that you might be doing, it's all your spare time goes mm-hmm. into arts-related stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't – I think that's quite – I think that's common for all of us really yeah. to mm-hmm. like – um, not and you have to combine somehow any your spare time with your art time yeah. somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's why a lot of us don't the kind of stay within the artist community. And all we yeah. have really have time for is you know other in terms of other people and stuff is people that you see at openings yeah. and stuff because you totally. yeah. there's not really a lot of time for another yeah. life yeah. outside of it. I know. It's like sorry I couldn't come to your show. I was working for my own show <laughs> that's in like three weeks. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's um. The, I used to work a lot into the evenings writing and in about the last two years had to kind of put a cap on it just because I yep. was finding for, just wasn't able to switch off at night. Mm. I think that's why, mm. and that's why I um, am really regimented with the hours yeah. because if you, I think as artists, we just will never stop. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. You yeah. just keep going mm-hmm. yeah. and you end up, I think actually a good piece of advice that I remember um, from, also from Kate uh, no, from Kate Daw, from Kate Daw, different Kate, um, was that art is a, art's not a sprint, it's a long distance run. Mm. And I think the thing that we often do, we're often in this sprint mode. Yeah. And um, we kind of, um, and, and I think it's important that we do um, space things out a bit more and actually like, program in some time for a bit of Mm self-care because I think Mm -hmm. we all tend to like burn ourselves out then have these periods of like oh and you you know and that's when those kind of negative thoughts come in when you're really burnt out um but if we can kind of level out that a little bit and try to keep on more of a structured yeah uh consistent kind of program I I know for me that's what's really helped me out a lot yeah I am I'm really aware of that whole like post-show blues and when you're you know you're working on all this adrenaline and 
Um, and then all of a sudden you've had the show and then you're like, what was that all for? You're feeling really crap. Your adrenals are totally drained. Mm -hmm. Your diet's probably been really fucked because you've been like eating while you're installing or like staying up till, you know, God knows what hour and then getting up first thing in the morning. Yeah, five hours sleep. Yeah, Yeah. or less and like on a constant basis and then Mm -hmm. you kind of, it's all done and then you just feel crap and empty mm-hmm. or you have to keep going on to the next show and you are so drained and like learning how to create a yeah a practice that you can kind of work along and sustain and being organized to make sure that you don't totally crash and burn at yep. the end of it yeah um and I found that also with studying like after my honors and after my master's I also kind of went through that of just feeling mm-hmm. like an empty shell person for yep a few months just yeah. being like, mm. how do I read a book again? Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to touch a book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Mm. Totally. I yeah. think um, we all um, are guilty of not, of, of putting our art before ourselves, mm. really. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And for most, mm. for most of the time, really. Yeah. Mm. And um, I think that's actually, but that's the thing. I think that's what makes us artists. And I think that's why we're the ones who are still carrying mm. on a number of years after art school is because we just, really have it any other way yeah, <laughs> like absolutely yeah. there's an element of stubbornness that i think we all have that we yeah. kind of <laughs> we just can't not do it yeah, yeah exactly i mean every i mean yeah so often everything everything else gets put to the side yeah. like all of our relationships mm-hmm. our you know our health our um you know mental health our you know financial you know well-being and mm-hmm. it all just goes you know right to the side and and then you know we have to kind of pick up the pieces and like our family's like you okay? <laughs> it, it kind of makes me, uh, I get the tingles when um, people say, oh, that's not real money, that's art money. Oh. You know, like how you kind of like, oh, I'm just going to put $2,000 in framing this and that. And yeah. you kind of go, oh, um, like, can't you just eat, like buy some strawberries or something know, instead, yeah. please? I think as well, I think that it's so good for grant, like funding bodies to say that you need to pay yourself an artist fee because sometimes, yeah, when I see people win a big prize or something and it all just goes back into their practice and I'm like, you you need to like be able to buy yourself some green vegetables. Yeah, totally. Because you really need to eat a vegetable right you now. Pay yourself some super maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I think when we were coming out of art school and stuff, we all kind of just thought, I don't need money. Super's for the bourgeoisie. You know, we had all these, like, ideals. And then the further you get along, you kind of go, oh, oh actually, um, we actually do need a bit of financial security. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff all, as advice for younger artists, that does that stuff does all catch up with you. Like, you don't mm-hmm. think it, you never think it will. You always think it's, You're that's not me. Yeah. I'm like, um, I'm like, um, you know, I'm not, I don't buy into all of that stuff, but at some point yeah. you will need to. Yeah. yeah. And often, you know, like the, the later you actually leave it, the more devastating um, the results might be. So it's like, you know, it's something that you should consider, I guess, earlier on or get some advice on at least. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The young, mm. the young baby I artists didn't out consider there. it for a very no. long time. I didn't really know what it was, you know. It's like, yeah. Oh. Or just, yeah, understanding how to, or understanding that if I am um, able to position myself in a way that I can actually create a sustainable career by doing either working on the side or, like, if I do get grants and things, making that um, work in a way that means that it, it doesn't just all kind of explode when I do one thing and then I don't I don't get to actually see the benefits of that long term in my yep. career. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, rather than it just being like one project based and then it's all kind of gone. Actually, some advice when you talk about that that I would give to, I mean, I think when we were at school, we always we always thought that, oh, we could just live off grants. Like, we'll just get yeah. grants. It'll <laughs> yeah. be fine. But grants, I mean, yeah, they, they do try to pay an artist fee, but the reality is it's never that much. Like mm-hmm. how much, what's it, how much in an artist, a $10,000 grant, how much of an artist fee? Mm, you get? Maybe mm. 2000 at the most. Mm. So the grants pay for your production costs, but they don't really pay you that yeah. much. So I think um, we all need some kind of financial plan really coming yeah. out of art school like, I mean, it sounds really serious and, mm. like, you, you never think about it in that way. But if I, oh, I honestly, if it was the biggest advice that I would give to yeah. a, 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 someone coming mm-hmm. out of school is that you need to have thought about how are you going to make money, like, mm. whether it's from art or from another thing that you can do. Yeah. It's, mm. it's sad because I think a lot of the people that we came through art school with who were the most talented, you see them kind of drop away and it's really sad because, not because... I mean, the art was always amazing, mm. but they haven't taken care of that side of things, mm. and you, and you mm. can, you can only do that for so long. Yeah, yeah. and it's not 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 only just that. Um you know, young artists need to think about it, but they actually need to be given advice on it because, you know, you can think about it all you want, but if you don't know anything and you have no yeah. education, mm. like in, you know, like they don't teach, they don't teach, you know, how to look after your finances in school. They don't teach That's it at true. art school. That's true. And it's also like, don't rely on a job in the arts just because you studied fine art. There's a oh whole lot of other God. people that oh, are more industry. qualified <laughs> than you that have studied for that job and you are not going, you might not walk into a gallery getting even a front of house job. Um, I could not get a job in the arts to save my life. Mm. Like it's really competitive. Mm. And the sad thing about it is, is that it always pays a lot worse and requires a lot more hours than a job that's not in the arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've actually benefited from the part-time jobs that I've done in the past have always been outside of the arts mm-hmm. and they've treated me a hell of a lot better. Mm-hmm. So I think that's some other advice that I'd give anyone is that if you have any, if you can find any other skill set or anything yeah. else that you can do mm-hmm. other than mm-hmm. art, mm-hmm. then that's a great way to support your practice. Mm-hmm. And on that, I would say like try and find a job that has a flexibility that will allow you to keep continuing your practice mm-hmm. and take the time when you have a show or like a workplace. That, and this, these are high demands <laughs> to walk into a job and be like, I need to be able to take time off when I, you know, have a show coming up or when I need to travel for residency. It's hard to locate those jobs, but um, there are ones that do exist out there and you might have to shuffle around from job to job. But, um, yeah, expecting to work in the arts as an artist is kind of a, like, it's not going to, well, it's, you It know, makes it luck. really difficult for yeah. you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Certainly not straight off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what does a successful practice look like to you or mean to you as an artist? Honestly, I think it's just um, if you can just be still going, that's already the biggest success. Mm. Um, I know for me the only, the only goal I really have really is to keep developing my work. Yeah. So, and all the other stuff around that, like in terms of making money from art and the other stuff is really just goes into helping me be able to continue making work and making and um, testing different ideas and conceptually working out different things. That's really just being able to continue on that trajectory. Mm. I think there's really all you can really hope Mm. for, really. Um, And it's already the biggest goal in itself. Mm. You have already given us so much amazing 
advice and tips, but if you could, if you were to summarise and you could go to Kevin when he first went to, mm-hmm. stepped in the door at VCA, what advice would you give him? I would say that I think there's um, people who um, have had a lot of success, I think, um, Maybe there's some irresponsible advice been given, like shoot for the stars, live your <laughs> dreams, you know, like find something you love and do it for a living. And I think there's a lot of that in the mainstream culture. Like, mm. you know, you hear like at the Grammys, they accept the yeah. award and they'll tell everyone to do You know, and I think it's created this culture of real dissatisfaction where we have a lot of people you know, working as a checkout chick at Officeworks and kind of really hating their life because they think they should be a pop star. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same with art. Like, I think we all got fed this misconception mm. that, you know, go be an artist, it'll be amazing. It doesn't look like that. Um, and so you've got to be prepared for the uh, financial realities of what it means to be an artist because mm-hmm. I don't think any of us really were. Mm. I think we all kind of thought that... Um, it would be really satisfying to be being, and it it is like it is of course satisfying to be able to you know go on your own trajectories and have this artistic journey, but at the same time, like if you asked me now, I mean, because at the moment I'm kind of ticked off a lot of boxes of what I wanted to to, mm. to achieve, like what I wanted to do, like showing with commercial galleries and you know having this and that. But if you ask me now, like, you know, um, are you happier now than you were when you were in the checkout ticket office works, mm. I don't know that I'd be able to say that I necessarily am. Like, mm. I don't know that that's what you should be putting your kind of, you know, hopes of your mm. personal dreams and satisfactions should oh, be based yeah. on. Um, I think that that's a kind of across the board, though, that people identify their work as their sense of worth mm. and that their happiness derives from how successful they are as well. And yeah. that's, um, yeah, across the field. And I think learning how to be really comfortable with yourself, learning how to, like, be friends with yourself, learning how to enjoy what you do but without sense also like attaching your sense of worth in the world totally to what you're producing and putting mm. out there. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this sense of failure that we kind of attach to that as mm. well. Actually, another great piece of advice from Kate Just. <laughs> if she's your teacher, you should listen to it. Um, but I remember her saying that no one actually really fails at art. You just mm. at some point decide that it's not for you anymore. You mm. just stop doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to let go of this sense that if, um, you want to, if it's, if it's better for your life to not be doing art, then that's good. Mm. You should make that decision. Like it's not a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and you don't also necessarily need to be a inverted commas career artist. Mm. Like there are so many ways to be part of the conversation and to be part of this artistic community mm-hmm. without having to feel like you need to put your, your whole life aside to be able to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. I would argue that even though you might not be practising within the contemporary art context, you as an individual that have gone through the world and learnt these skills of viewing and exploring ideas and concepts, that you never kind of stop being an artist and even if you're then going into another field, you are bringing with you this skill set, skill set of like... Um, of different ways of seeing basically that you could employ in any workplace or any, you know, or running a family or, you know, working in a community or totally. working, mm-hmm. you know, as a nanny. Like it doesn't matter what it is that you're, um, 
yeah, those skills stay with you. And so I don't think you ever really like stop being an artist. No, but you I can absolutely agree. Mm. You can definitely kind of take yourself away from a competitive art world. Definitely. Yeah. And probably have a lot better mental health for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure we all would if we could detach that identity of artists from, you know, self. Mm. It is so, I mean, for me, it's so tied to, they're so tied together. It's, they're yeah. so intertwined. Like, you know, they're, they're really not able to be kind of pulled apart from each other, but it's like, oh yeah, I could just like, I could actually um focus on what's best for me as a person yeah. outside of what's best for me as an artist. I mean, Isn't if you radical? just do that some of the time, it would, it helps us out Absolutely. a lot. Mm. I think it also helps your peers out as well. Like in just terms of like, bringing an air of enthusiasm and engagement to your practice and other people's practices. I know personally when I am totally burnt out and drained, I'm horrible to be around and Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. probably looking at people's work through a really jaded lens as well (laughs) and probably being like, well, good for you for getting that great thing (laughs) rather than actually being when deep down, I'm actually really happy. Like I never like don't want people to succeed. Yeah. And it's just when you get that kind of, you've been in a competitive hole of grant writing or like applying for shows or you know, being in group shows where things, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, whatever it is that kind of puts you um, around a lot of people that might, you know, sometimes just, yeah, going and grounding yourself and then re-entering the space. that's probably probably another piece of advice that is um, that I think we all compare ourselves to everyone else Mm. way too much. And I think the nature of that is that there's an expectation on us to be constantly aware of what's going on. So you can't ever feel like you can just turn off, you know, the email feeds or the Instagram feeds mm-hmm. or whatever it is and knowing who's showing where and all this kind of business. But by, by constantly in that feed, you're constantly seeing like, oh, so-and-so got this, so-and-so got that. And people who, you know, who consider your peers or people who maybe even be your juniors, like mm. getting stuff that you really want. Mm-hmm. And it puts you in as really, it's not healthy really yeah. for your own self-esteem mm. and for your own, and you've got to find a way to separate yourself from it a little bit. I know that for me, I, I see a lot of shows, but I try not to go to too many openings mm. nowadays because of that whole thing. Because of course it's natural. Of course, everyone at the opening is going to ask, you know, what have you been up to? What have you been up to? And when everyone else seems to be doing these amazing institutional <laughs> shows or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, like I made a cup of tea today. Yeah. And went to the studio. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, Kevin probably went to the studio for like nine hours. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't leave the studio. I'm never allowed out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting because it's like, you know, there it's, it's like we sort of do have a responsibility as well to talk about the bad things and I think that's so often not the case at like Mm. an opening or something but like so rarely do you just and no one wants to hear that either I think like if you're in an opening you're like oh have you been it's like well actually I haven't been that good like my mental health is really fucked at the moment yeah Mm. um nobody's sort of doing that you know maybe with close friends but it's not it's not talked about you know we kind of all know that it's that it's there in the community but nobody's talking about everybody and naturally everybody wants to just talk about what they're, you know, looking forward to and optimistic about. But it's like I wonder if we could actually work in that that way of talking about, you know, the, the realities of what it what it is to be an artist as well. Yeah, because mm. it's all, uns- like there's always that, like, you know, we um, 
wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like it's all kind of unsaid that you're mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, I just did that, ha ha, you know, like, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's not really ever that. It's true. It's never really yeah. that. Well, even with the successes as well, how much work goes into those things and mm. like going, you know, putting on a show, even though it's like amazing that you're showing wherever, so much time, so much energy, so much resources have gone into make that so many, you know, relationships that you've had to kind of rely on or totally. Um, so that even though, you know, on your CV, it turns out to be this one line and mm-hmm. it looks really nice and mm-hmm. you're really proud of it. Mm-hmm. There is so much labor that goes into having that done that and not just from yourself, but from your whole extended community to kind of pull you through mm. that time yeah, or your absolutely. workmates or your partner or mm. um, your housemates. So it's, um, you know, recognizing that people, even when they are, you know, looking like they're really doing really well, they might be struggling or they might be, you know, just really exhausted or not wanting to be in a white room full of bright lights and drunk people. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think creating space for people to be more honest is a, like, would be a really great thing for our community to embrace more. So leading on from there, is there any advice that you um, would like to give um, either people kind of starting out or in terms of through your lived experience, um, share stories of anything that in terms of structural inequality that you would like to speak to? Yeah. um, So for myself, I think I've been curated into shows probably 50-50 that half have been to do with... um, just my personal biography. So, for example, Chinese-Australian artists. Mm-hmm. And about half of the time it's thematic. So, for example, um, imagined worlds. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think it's important that um, artists who come from my various different minorities are included in shows um, for the sake of, like, how that it's not just a show about people who might be deaf or people mm. who, um, are, you know, it's not based on the biographies completely. But sometimes I feel like the way that an, institu- an institution curates a program, it's like, oh, they look, you know, we've done the whole program for the year and then it's like, oh, shit, we haven't got any, everyone, everyone's white. Let's quickly mm. do a show about Chinese-Australian artists Mm-mm. and tick off our quota that way. Yeah. You know? And I think there needs to be more consideration all through the program. If you're curating a show or involved in a show and you see that, like, hang on, there's not a lot of diversity in this group of artists, think about... There's always, I can promise you, there's always artists who are working on whatever theme or whatever the show's about. There's always going to be an artist out there who's a person of colour, who's female, who's gay, you know, part of the LGBTIQ community, Mm -hmm. who's um, got a disability. There's always going to be someone out there Mm -hmm. who can... who you can include in that show Mm -hmm. and who will really benefit... And they also, yeah, they don't just make, um, you know, work about that one thing in their life as well. Absolutely. You know, it's not every queer artist doesn't make work just about being queer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, there are people to be included and there is a mass of people to choose from that are making work and producing work. I think it's just a matter of being more conscious of the pool of artists Mm. in a show because I think, Often it's just not really, you just don't really slip in. You just don't think about it. Mm. Like, and I think if people are just a little bit more aware of those things, a bit more sensitive, um, it actually helps the institution as well because there's this, I can promise you, if the show like, if the show like that comes out and it's like all these straight white men, mm. 
people are talking about it and it doesn't reflect well on your institution mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And you may not even hear back about that, but uh, everyone. everyone's talking about it. Everyone yeah. knows, mm-hmm. you know, like people are conscious of it. So you yeah. need, if you're involved in these shows, you need to be more conscious of yeah. these things. It's yeah. one of the first things I do when I work into like a major like show that is like a survey or like of a theme or whatever and a group show is kind of go through and try and be like how many women are like represented in this show um how many people like you know identify as male or female are there non-binary people represented are there trans people represented yeah because i just think it's lazy curating and i think it's also just um you know, time's up for that shit. And at, it happens at the level of um, gallery representation as well. Yeah. I mean, I, part of the reason why I've signed on with Diane Tanza and This No Fantasy and also Martin Brown is because they have a very good track record of supporting a really diverse range of artists. But there are definitely galleries in Australia that do not even think about that at oh. all. Oh, and yeah. um, not going to name names. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. We, we, oh we all know who, well, we all, you know, have a good idea of um, mm-hmm. who they are. And, do you know, it just, it can't go on like that. Yeah. Like, they need to, it needs to, some accountability needs to, needs to yeah. happen. And I think also if you are, a, like, in an institution or a space where, and you want to put on a show that involves one of these communities, then get that community to create that show rather mm. than, you know, as a institution selecting who you think should represent that community. Yeah. Actually, gives the agency to the community to d- make those decisions. Totally. And and on that, I think um, uh, it's not just the responsibility on people from minority. I feel like I'm always advocating for all kinds of different minority groups, but the responsibility isn't just with those of us mm. who are part of these minority groups. I mean, straight yeah. white men as well need to just take some responsibility and oh. be conscious of involving other people yeah, into, absolutely. Their, into their activities, into their yeah. program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On that note, do you have any shows or um, residencies or anything coming up in the near future that people can go and check out? Well, um, my first Sydney solo exhibition uh, will open on the 2nd of May at Button Brown Contemporary. And the show is called Structural Equality and it takes as its starting point um, a lot of these issues that we've been talking about today mm-hmm. about structural inequality. Um, and Part of it has been um, to do with, uh, it's largely based on the residency I did in America last year where I, um, part, on part of that trip, I went across to um, Washington mm-hmm. and um, visited the African-American History Museum, cool. um, which is quite new, and saw a whole lot of stories that have been left out went across to the normal history museum and it became so obvious how much of the um, narrative that we are familiar with is written by um, straight white men, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, that's been a bit of influence in the, in the show that I've, I've made, uh, the paintings for Martin Brown. Um, do take structures from the man-made environment and parallel them with structures in the natural environment to think about how these social, economic and political structures do affect the land in which we live. Mm, Great. That's really exciting. Um, If people can't go to see the show in person, if they're unable to get to Sydney... Um, are you on Instagram or Facebook or your website? Yeah, my website's kevinchin.com.au and my Instagram tag is kevin underscore chin underscore art. 
great. We'll link all of those below as well so people can easily access them to check out your work. That would be brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. All of your input. Oh, thank you guys so much for thinking of me. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPracPodcast or send us an email at ProPracPod at gmail.com. 